The song Rust Bucket is from the band The Boss Jaguars. It's available on their recently released EP, C&BC. Find out more about them over at bossjaguars.com or follow the links in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website for the podcast Monster Kid Radio, where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to episode number 98. Now, last weekend was the World Horror Convention here in Portland, Oregon. Now, in the last episode, you heard me talk about the World Horror Convention with Desmond Reddick and the daughter of Vincent Price, Victoria Price. Well, Victoria gave a presentation at the World Horror Convention. It was a presentation of the life and influence of her father, Vincent Price. It ran about an hour. Now, I chatted with Victoria before the presentation, and she gave us the okay to go ahead and record the presentation and share it with the listeners here at Monster Kid Radio. And that's what we're going to do in this episode of the show. Before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and review the website. Over there, you can find links to everything, like our Flickr album, our YouTube page, our Live 365 channel. You can also find our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And we have a voicemail line. You can call us at 503 503- Four seven nine five six five seven. That's five zero three four seven nine five M K R. I'm going to bring that number up again at the end of the show. So if you didn't get it just a second ago, hang tight. You're going to get it at the end of the show. Also over at the website, you can find a link to our Facebook group. You can also find a listing of every band and every song that's appeared here on Monster Kid Radio. You'll find links to almost every one of their websites where you can buy the album, buy the music for yourself. If you do, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. You know, I'm really excited to get to the presentation that Victoria did on her father. It was a multimedia presentation. There were photos shown through the entire thing. So every once in a while, she refers to a picture that she showed us in the crowd. The pictures were great. You'll have to trust me. This is an audio show, so you don't get to see them. But trust me, there were great photos. I'll come back and chat with you a little bit about what we're doing next week on Monster Kid Radio after the presentation with Victoria Price about her father, Vincent Price, right after this. Journey into double terror with the late night double feature with X, the fiend from beyond space and the wall people. A crew of interstellar explorers must fight an unstoppable alien fiend from beyond space, hell-bent on consuming them all. Will they survive? Can they survive? And on the same program, a man must fight to save his only child from the clutches of strange invaders who use their advanced technologies to steal sleeping children through their bedroom walls. Are your children safe? Two terrors to tear you apart in the late night double feature. at a horror convention, I have to get a true confession out of the way, which is that I myself am not a horror fan. And I always fear saying that, lest I will be stoned and uh, burned and have things done to me like were done to my father in the movies. Um, And you will find out why I'm not a horror fan. It's really nothing against the genre. I was traumatized as a child, and I have visual proof that you will see later. (laughs) But I am a fan of horror fans. And I have to say, of all the conventions I've been to, this one being mainly geared toward readers and art lovers, I have to say, this one's pretty darn cool, because I myself am a reader and an art lover, so... This could actually almost open my heart even more to the horror genre. But what I am a fan of is you guys, horror fans, because, you know, I I had to write a new intro to the biography I wrote about my dad, and he's been gone 20 years now. And there were people who were way, way bigger stars than he was during his career. And nobody's heard of them. People like, somebody just uh, yesterday came up and said her name was Carol after Carol Lombard. And people don't even remember who Carol Lombard was. She was huge, huge star. And, uh, you know, people like Robert Taylor, Montgomery Clift, I mean, way bigger stars than my dad. And the reason that my dad's legacy has lasted is you guys. Um, you, it's really true. And no, I should, be, I should be applauding you. 
It, and you know, it's not just the horror movies. You got him, you know, and you got who he was. And I think the reason he really resonated with the horror movies and you guys really resonate to him is because in many ways he thought of himself as an outsider. And the reason he did was because he loved art. And so I like to give this presentation, it's a, a little gift back to you guys to, to share um, how important the horror genre was to him. But the other reason I like to give it is because uh, the other thing I inherited from both of my parents, um, my dad was often called a, a renaissance man. And I've come to realize that that is a polite euphemism that they give to famous people. Really what it means is he was a workaholic multitasker. <laughs> and I inherited that in droves. And, uh, you know, I, I really never stop working. But when I come here... I connect with my dad in a way that reminds me about what his real legacy was. And his real legacy was that he moved through life with joy. He had such passion for living, and everything that he did, he enjoyed. He had a hell of a good time, which I think you can always see in his movies. And kind of when I channel him by talking with you guys, I remember that my the most important thing I can do every day of my life is to try to have the daily practice of joy. And I think it's really interesting because, you know, horror movies, people say, oh, it's all about fear. But really, I think all of life comes down to two things, fear or love. And when I go to these horror conventions, what I see is a bunch of people who love this genre and love what it expresses. And my dad loved this genre too, and he felt that horror was this really necessary thing in our society, and I think even more so, so now, because it allows a catharsis, it allows a release. And, uh, you know, I, I know he needed that, and he got it through laughter, and he got it through the horror genre, and he got it through art. And I get it from coming out into the world and stepping out away from my workaholic, multitasking life and remembering that every day we get to choose between fear and love. And when I see all of you guys who love this genre, it reminds me, practice joy every day. Find something you love and give back. Share it and go through life with passion. And so I'm going to share with you some of the reasons and ways that my dad did that. And I always start with this picture because I think it really captures him. This is uh, the two of us at an opening um, at the Vincent Price Art Museum in East Los Angeles. And it really captures him because he, uh, first of all, my dad, everybody always thought my dad was this really elegant dresser like he was in the movie. You would be lucky if he hadn't worn the same pair of $10 polyester waiter's pants three days in a row. He had really bad feet, so he wore suede tennis shoes because his feet hurt all the time. He loved Brooks Brothers shirts, the more wrinkled the better, like this one. He sort of made a loose attempt to kind of, uh, you know, throw on something that looked vaguely like an ascot, and really it looks like he didn't know how to tie a tie. <laughs> and the best part is that if you look in his pocket, there's a plastic fork and spoon, and I think that pretty much captures him. You know, if he, if he was gonna miss an opportunity to eat, he would not be happy. So there's that fork and spoon. <laughs> So I said that my dad felt like an outsider, and I want to tell you a little bit about his childhood. Um, he was born into a wealthy family. His dad, his grandfather, my great-grandfather, was also Vincent Price. People often think it was a stage name. And he was a household name in the 19th century. He invented baking powder. He was the first person to patent extracts of vanilla and breakfast cereals. He wrote famous cookbooks. And he had uh, a son who is uh, this guy over here. And I show this picture for a couple of reasons. One, I love it that he obviously hated his nose so much that he blacked out the tip to make it look smaller. Um, he also was Vincent Price, and he was attending Yale uh, after graduating from high school where he was this very creative uh, guy. The other reason I show the picture is because one of the other people in this magic act was also the father of a famous actor. This kid down here, his name uh, was Richard Wells, and he was Orson Welles' dad. Uh, so this Vincent Price was pulled out of Yale uh, after the Panic of 1893, when apparently my great-grandfather lost a fortune. 
And he was put in charge of one of the family businesses, a candy company. And that candy company, uh, my grandfather decided to move to St. Louis because very, very wisely, he realized that both of the Olympics and the World's Fair were gonna be in St. Louis in 1904. So he moved his company to St. Louis and he became uh, one of the most famous candy makers in the United States. He had four kids, and the youngest one was much younger than the others, and he felt very different from his siblings for many reasons. He was also Vincent Price, and this is him, my dad. His older siblings all had dark hair, and they were all very, very musically talented. And while my dad could carry a tune, he was blonde, and he felt that his great passion was the visual arts. He discovered a book that his sister had left behind, uh, and it was what he called postage stamp size reproductions of all the great works of art, and he just poured over this book nonstop, and he just fell in love with the visual arts. So he was 12 years old, he's walking around St. Louis, and there's a gallery that is selling art, and in it was... Uh, in the window was a first state Rembrandt etching. And my dad saw it and just fell in love. And he walked in, and to this day I bless that gallery owner who arranged a payment plan that allowed my 12-year-old father to buy his first piece of art. So he bought a Rembrandt for $37.50 and he paid for it over three week, three months with three years, I'm sorry, with his allowance. You know, in many ways, my dad was a typical upper middle class kid growing up in the Midwest. Uh, his parents were well to do. He went to all the best schools. When I was writing my biography, I read uh, a biography of Tennessee Williams who grew up right around the same time and he loathed St. Louis because he was on the wrong side of the tracks. He knew what the right side of the tracks looked like and you know, that's where my dad was. He was on the wrong side of the tracks and St. Louis was very exclusionary to uh, to people like him. My dad knew how to fit in, but in his heart he felt different because to love the arts if you were an upper middle class kid from the Midwest made you a weirdo. He did always love theater and he acted in a few plays. This is his very first one. This is him playing Robin Hood. But that was pretty much his last starring role for about 20 years. <laughs> The other thing, people often ask me, can you tell me something about Vincent Price that I don't know? And uh, this is something that most people don't know. My dad loved to deep sea fish. It was one of his great passions in life. He loved also making home movies. And uh, there are many of them. And most of them really are just an excuse to rescue a damsel in distress or better yet, like in this one, give her mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation after drowning. <laughs> that was really the height of his acting ambition for a long time. Uh, he wanted to um, study art and uh, he wanted to see a lot of the art that he had seen in his books. So he saved up enough money to go to Europe by himself when he was six, 17 years old and go on a grand tour of Europe. And he went all over Europe and saw these pieces that he'd seen in, you know, the little postage stamp size reproductions. And one of the most memorable experiences he had was at the Uffizi in uh, Rome, in Florence, where he saw this uh, painting, which is Madonna of the Harpies by Andrea del Sarto. And he was standing in front of it, he's 17 years old, remember, and he was completely struck by the beauty of this Madonna. And he felt a tear roll down his eye, he, down his face. He was just so stunned by it. And this older lady came up behind him and she said, do you want to see the one that makes me cry? Well, that's where my dad being 17 kicked in. And he was a little mortified that this older lady had seen him crying. And so he tried to, you know, kind of hide it and say, oh, there's, there's just something in my eye. And the woman looked him in the eye and very quietly said, yes, beauty. <laughs> he never forgot that. Uh, I love this picture of him in his beaver coat, and that's in front of the house that he grew up in in St. Louis. Like his dad, he went to Yale, and he was called Vinny. He sang in the Glee Club. He uh, traveled again around Europe as a Glee Club singer. But his, his real secret desire was to be an actor. 
And so in his senior year, he made a friend who was the most famous person he'd ever known. He was a man named James Thurber, the famous American cartoonist and humorist. And Thurber made this drawing for my dad as his 22nd birthday present. It's just an amazing thing. So there's Thurber, envious age, and his wife, Beauty, my dad's dachshund, Loyalty, and you see all the other signs of the time, including, which I think is very prescient in 1933, Hitler up here, which I think is very interesting, and fear over here. Uh, and there's Calvin Coolidge <laughs> down there. In any case, uh, my dad decided that he should share with Thurber the secret desire he had to become an actor. And Thurber laughed at him. And so my dad thought, you know, if this incredibly famous, successful, creative man doesn't think I should act, I probably shouldn't. And so he decided to go study art history. Uh, long story short, um, my dad sort of had the last laugh. In an article in The New Yorker in the 1940s, Thurber wrote about young people who ask for advice. And in it, Thurber said, ever since I told Vincent Price not to become an actor, I never give young people advice. <laughs> so my dad, uh, after college, taught for a year, and then he got into the very prestigious art history program at the University of London's Courtauld Institute. And he studied the school of Albrecht Dürer, whom he, whose work he loved. And uh, he was very much the esthete, as you can see. Um, he also got very sick, so that <laughs> accounts for the sort of sallow look. <laughs> And this, of course, is a wonderful self-portrait of Dürer, whom he studied. And he went to Austria quite a bit. And uh, for those of you who are art fans, uh, it, now when you go to the Albertina in Vienna to study the work of Dürer or to see the work of Dürer, it's actually all reproductions that are in the museum under the glass cases because they're so fragile. But in those days, my dad actually got to see and touch and handle them, and it was incredibly exciting. But he still loved theaters, so he went to see John Gielgud's Hamlet eight times. He was obsessed. And finally, a friend said, you know, if you love theater so much, why don't you try out for a play? It's London. So he did. He tried out for a play called Chicago, uh, which is the play on which the musical is based. And he got the part of a gum-chewing policeman. He was very excited about that. And that broke him in. And so he needed to have headshots made, because now he, he was kind of hooked, and he thought he'd audition for a few more things. But he was a poor student. So he went to this guy, and the guy said to him, you know, I'll take your headshots if you let me take a few that I can use for my, my portfolio. So my dad said, sure. And about three weeks later, he saw this picture uh, advertising soap, life-size, over Piccadilly Circus. <laughs> it's quite the, quite the shot, isn't it? In any case, my dad tried out for another play, and it was a play called Victoria Regina, which was written by Lawrence Hausman, who was the brother of A.E. Hausman. And my dad decided he had a good shot for it because he actually spoke German. He, he was very tall. He was six foot four, my dad, and so was Prince Albert, not six foot four, but tall for that era, and obviously spoke German. So my dad got the part, and he became an overnight star. So much so that he became, uh, he was named the uh, newcomer of the year in the British theater. Uh, he was male the newcomer of the year and the female newcomer of the year was Vivian Lee. <laughs> so an, an American producer came over to buy the play for his star, the first lady of the American theater, Helen Hayes. And Lawrence Hausman said, I will not sell you the play unless you bring this young American over with you. And he made it out to sound like my dad was already this big star. And Gilbert Miller, who was the uh, producer, decided to bring my dad over to America. And there he went on Broadway and overnight became a matinee idol. As you can see, he was very, very handsome. And so Hollywood came calling, because he was a huge star, and they offered him a million dollar movie contract. And my dad very wisely thought, you know, most people would just say yes, but he thought, I need to ask the advice of somebody who's a, who knows what they're doing. So he went to Miss Hayes, and he said, you know, do you think I should do this? And she asked him one very simple question. She said, do you think you know your craft? And he looked at her, and he said, well, how can I? I've been in, like, three plays, two plays. She said, exactly. If you don't want to be a flash in the pan, I would advise you to turn down the million-dollar movie contract and learn your craft. And so my dad did. 
This is the Depression. This is 1935. He turned down a million-dollar movie contract. And in those days, Broadway closed in the summers because there was no air conditioning. So he went all over and did summer stock. And he acted alongside some of the great ladies of the American theater. And he learned his craft. The other thing he also learned was about art. Um, he discovered that the other actor who was really into art was Edward G. Robinson. And he figured if he followed Edward G. Robinson around, he'd learn uh, where all the great art galleries were in New York. So he did. But the other thing he learned from Edward G. Robinson was how to, as my dad put it, handle or bargain, because apparently Edward G. Robinson was a great bargainer in putting together what was at the time probably one of the two or three greatest collections of Impressionist art, which is what Robinson collected. Uh, I include this uh, Toulouse-Lautrec because for Christmas one year, Helen Hayes decided to give my dad a piece of art. And he gave her, she gave him some painting by some society painter that my dad thought was appalling. And he asked, he asked Helen Hayes if he could buy what he wanted. And he ended up buying this Toulouse-Lautrec. And in those days, buying posters was considered very de classe. And she was sort of, I think she had her feelings a little bit hurt that he, he was buying something, um, you know, not quite up to her standards. Of course, my dad was proved right in the end because to own a Toulouse-Lautrec was is a very nice thing. He finally did go out to Hollywood and he signed a contract and his first movie was a movie called Service Deluxe, a movie that he thought was horrendous. He played a romantic lead. I actually, it's for what it was, it was quite good and he certainly is handsome. But the thing that was very interesting about this was he loathed the experience. He knew from the get-go that he was not leading man material. The actors he admired were Jimmy Cagney um, and Edward G. Robinson, and you know he didn't look like them, so he wasn't getting those parts. And so there he was stuck, feeling like a character actor in a leading man's face and, and body. And so they had a hard time figuring out what to do with him. Uh, and so what he decided to do was go back to Broadway where he could do what he wanted to do. And he joined Orson Welles Mercury Theater. And uh, this is his contract for the Mercury Theater. He signed on to do four Shakespeare plays. And Orson Welles was doing these very cutting edge productions in, in modern day dress. But the most uh, interesting thing that happened to my dad during that period were, was two things. Um, one was he met a, a woman in the cast who had been a huge melodrama star and came from a very successful theatrical family, a woman named Edith Barrett, and they got married. The next thing that happened was that he discovered a gallery right near his house. Uh, he lived on 44th Street. And it was run by uh, a woman named Alma Reed, who had been the mistress of uh, Orozco, the great Mexican muralist. And she had this Orozco painting that my dad fell in love with. And you know, he would go in and look at it every day. And finally, she was like, why don't you just buy the damn painting? And he said, I'm a, I can't afford it. And she said, well, make sure you can afford it. And so he ended up buying this incredible piece. Uh, which he eventually felt sort of guilty about owning because it was too important of a piece. So it's actually at the Chicago Art Institute. And if you go see Grant Wood's American Gothic and you're standing looking at American Gothic, if you turn around, this piece is right behind you. And it's an incredibly powerful piece of art. So he comes back to Hollywood and he gets cast in more character roles. He gets cast in The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex with Betty Davis and Errol Flynn. And the funny story about that movie is that my dad had been, uh, played Errol Flynn's role in Summerstock. And Flynn would show up slightly debauched and rather drunk and ill-prepared. And the director used to threaten Flynn with firing him because after all, he had an actor on set who knew all his lines. So, thank God my dad was one of the more likable people in Hollywood. Um, and of course, his first uh, horror-type movie with uh, some people who would become dear, dear friends, Basil Rathbone and Boris Karloff. And his initiation by Basil and Boris into Hollywood was when they had to, in the scene, dunk him in a vat of Malmsey. Uh, they knew this was coming up, and for days they dumped all of their cigarette butts and trash and disgusting things in this vat of Malmsey. And then they held my dad down just a little bit too long just to put him in his place. You're an upstart, kid. 
He also appeared in a movie of which he was uh, very, very proud. This movie is widely regarded as one of the worst movies ever made. And what I love about my dad is that instead of being embarrassed and trying to pretend that he didn't appear in it, he's like, hey, this is one of the worst movies ever made. You know, that's a, that's a badge of honor. And so when I first wrote the book and I would go around the country talking uh, about the book, I would read an excerpt from the New York Times, which was hilarious uh, about how bad this movie was. But since the advent of YouTube, um, you guys can see for yourself just how hellacious green hell is. What's the thermometer say, Richardson? 130. Boy, it's hot. I'm roasting. In the swamps, it gets as high as 140. I thought they never roasted a man till after he was dead. That's why they call it the green hell. Strange guy, Richardson. He always keeps to himself. You know anything about him? Nothing. That's about the best thing to know about any man's affairs. It is X. Don't look now, but there's um, something moving over there. Hey, them there alligators sure do look hungry. Well, don't fall in, Tex. You might poison them. That'd be tragic. Mysterious the jungle is at night. The more you see of it, the less you know about it. That sounds incredibly lonely, doesn't it? I wonder why there's so many lonely people in such a crowded world. Brandy, do you think a man can love two women at the same time, in his heart be faithful to each, and yet want to be free? What do you want, an answer or a justification? get the idea. It's pretty great. <laughs> you know, as long as I knew my dad, he never ever said no to an autograph, never stopped, didn't stop to talk to a fan. And I think the reason was, is that he was always a big fan himself. One of the people who befriended him when he first came to Hollywood was uh, Joan Crawford. And my dad had no idea why. He used to say, I have no idea why she likes me, but it's Joan Crawford, you know? And he'd get invited to dinner parties at her house. In 1940, my brother was born, uh, and my dad became a father for the first time. And shortly thereafter, he went back to Broadway, and it was a real turning point in his career. Again, he'd been sort of casting around, casting a lot of different things, uh, and he got cast in this melodrama called Angel Street, which would later be made into a movie called Gaslight with Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. But this became the longest running melodrama on Broadway. And my dad, that first night when he stepped on the stage and people hissed and booed at him, he was hooked. He was like, this is for me, I'm gonna be a villain. And it was just palpable, the feeling that he got from it. And he realized that this is how he could become a character actor. He could be a villain. And so he was under contract to Fox for most of the 40s, and he began getting cast as a villain. This is in Dragonwick, where he plays an opium addict who kills not one but both of his wives, and uh, with the incredibly beautiful Jean Tierney and a very young Jessica Tandy. Uh, and this is him playing the prosecutor in Song of Bernadette. But people always ask me what my favorite Vincent Price movie is, and I always say Laura. It is such a great film, classic film noir. And I, I think the reason I like it so much, other than it, it's so much against type and it's such an incredible film, is that it, it, it allows me a glimpse at the dad that I never knew, the young um, blonde guy that I you know, never got to see. And uh, it's such a wonderful part, uh, Shelby Carpenter, in that movie. At the same time, he opened a gallery. 
he actually opened a gallery on Little Santa Monica in Beverly Hills because that was still his great passion and he felt that LA was sort of a cultural wasteland. And so he opened this gallery and he uh, located it between a bookstore and a bar, figuring it would be the perfect uh, combination, as he said, of intellectuals and inebriates. And it became the great gathering spot in Los Angeles during the war and post-war years. I mean, literally, he said, like, one day you'd look up and there'd be, like, Thomas Mann and Stravinsky and Bertolt Brecht. And, I mean, it was unbelievable who was in there. And he gave a lot of people their first shows, including a, a very well-known artist from the Northwest Coast area named Morris Graves. And uh, he would get a lot of submissions for art. And one day he got uh, this little drawing. And it was a long letter with it, and it said, if you like this drawing, please go ahead and just send me three tubes of vermilion, a crate of oranges, and three pairs of black socks, which was already odd enough. Um, but my dad liked the drawing, and then he noticed the signature, and the signature, uh, it was a man named Henry Miller, the Henry Miller, as in Tropic of Capricorn. And uh, he had gone, come to Hollywood to be a... Um, a screenwriter loathed it and began painting. And for those of you who are artists, a wonderful, wonderful book by Henry Miller is uh, To Paint is to Love Again. Incredible book. And so my dad gave Henry Miller his first show and became the first spokesman for his pieces. And, and he really did this for a lot of artists. I can't tell you the number of people who've come up to me and told me, big time collectors, huge collectors, who said, you know, the reason I bought this artist for the first time was because Vincent Price told me to. I mean, people like, you know, Richard Diebenkorn kind of artists. Uh, and there's Henry Miller. So the mid-40s were a very difficult time. His contract ended under Fox. This is my uh, grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary, after which both of them died within two short years of one another. And my dad also uh, got a divorce from, uh, from my brother's mother. And so he found himself alone living in his little adobe house in Beverly Hills with his dog, Joe. And he wrote a wonderful book uh, in the 60s, which... Uh, I'm hoping to, to bring out again, for those of you who are animal lovers, called The Book of Joe. Really great book. While his dad was ill, he was in Tucson, and my dad stumbled across a treasure trove of prehistoric Native American pottery. And he became one of the great collectors of ethnographic art very, very early on. And Hans Conried, the wonderful comic actor, said of my dad, you are the only actor who is never going to be able to say that you don't have a pot to piss in. <laughs> But, you know, handsome men don't stay, and charming men don't stay single for long. And he met my mother, who was a costume designer, uh, and she had been a Broadway costume designer, brought out to design a movie in Hollywood. And uh, she was the designer on this movie, and they had mutual friends who were art collectors, and they met, and this is actually their wedding picture. They were married uh, very spontaneously in Tijuana. Honeymoon trip on my ass, and I am an ass. That is their best man. <laughs> and a man named Perry Rathbone, who was later the head of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And that marriage actually lasted 23 years. That spur of the moment, Tijuana, let's get hitched a moment. Uh, my mom was very much a kindred spirit with my dad. She was uh, always five years ahead of her time, which was incredibly irritating to me as a child. I just wanted to look like all the other kids, not like what they might look like in five years. But it was a great thing for my dad. She was an incredible promoter of his work. And they traveled the world together. They began collecting art together. And they began cooking together. And really, a lot of what we regard as my dad's legacies, greatest legacies, came from my mom. Uh, things that she urged him to do. It took me a long time to realize that. Because <laughs> uh, my mom and I had that typical mother-daughter relationship. But time has passed, and I really understood what she did. My dad always understood it. He said to me at the end of his life, your mom did more for me than anyone. He was under uh, contract with RKO and did a couple of fun pictures with uh, Jane Russell, or Aunt Jane as we call her. Uh, and then... He encountered a very difficult period of his life. During the McCarthy era, he was gray-listed. And what that means is he was not blacklisted. He was not blackballed out of the industry, but lists were circulated to the studios, and there were people on them that studios and companies all over America were urged not to hire. 
And as I mentioned before, my dad was a workaholic and he did not work for over a year, which freaked him out. He ended up writing an amazing book during that year, which was my mom's idea, which is a book called I Like What I Know, his visual autobiography about his life and art, which is gonna come back out in the fall. But uh, he was freaked out. And so he elicited the help of what he said, some nice Republican ladies that he knew from the arts and he was able to get his name cleared. The list that he was on, and I just wanna share with you how crazy the McCarthy era was. The list that he was on was the pre-war, just follow along, anti-Nazi sympathizers. So what that meant was that if you were against the Nazis before World War II, you must be a communist. There were a lot of people on that list. People like Eleanor Roosevelt were on that list. So he came out and literally a week later, he received two offers. One was for a play on Broadway called We're No Angels, which later was made into a movie with Humphrey Bogart. And the other was for a movie about an artist in a new technology, and that movie was House of Wax. And my dad took it for two reasons. One was he thought, let's try the new technology. He was, you know, this was a man who really could not read the instructions on how to plug in a telephone but he loved the idea of new technology. He had a TV before he knew how to use it. He understood that his industry depended on new technology, even though I had to read the instructions and tell him how to use it. Um, and so he decided to do House of Wax, and also because it was about an artist, and he could get into that role. And uh, of course, those of you who are House of Wax fans will recognize that as Charles Bronson. He was stunned, however, by the success of House of Wax. I mean, it was a huge success. A year later, he was on Broadway in Richard III, and people were still going to see the movie. And he would go in every so often to a matinee and uh, try to see if people were still enjoying it. And he decided that the best place to sit was to sit behind teenage girls who were just you know, trembling all the way through the movie. And because my dad was perpetually a joker, often at the end of the movie, as the credits rolled, he would lean forward and say, did you like it? <laughs> so that's my uh, parents actually at uh, a 3D premiere with their 3D glasses. One of the great fun things I got to do with my dad at the end of his life was see House of Wax in 3D with him. But, you know, his real passion was still collecting art, and my mom found this incredible showcase. It was a 9,000-square-foot Spanish mansion, which they got for no money because everybody wanted ranch houses in the 50s. And so they collected art all over the map. And they were great friends with most of the major art collectors in Los Angeles, and the, the house became a required visiting stop for the UCLA art students uh, to tour. So in the 50s, my mom and dad decided to do something pretty great. They donated 90 pieces of art to something that is now called the Vincent Price Art Museum, but it's at East Los Angeles College, which then was a tiny two-year school built on, you know, mud flats, you know, two Quonset huts. And it's now a school where 29,000 kids go through, most of whom are first-generation college students, 65% Latino, another 20% Asian. And, and it's an amazing school, and they started this museum, which is a hands-on collection. It's a very, very cool thing. And uh, so this is the school back in the 50s, and my dad was very active from the beginning. Uh, he and my mom donated over 2,000 pieces of art during their lifetime, and I'm on the board, so I am beating the drum. If I, any of you guys ever get down to L.A., go see this museum. It's an amazing, amazing space. And... Um, how much the students love it and how much it means to them is a real tribute to my dad. Of course, in the meantime, he's appearing in all the movies that you now know and love because he got hooked into the horror genre and it was a blessing. You know, all the actors who were becoming huge stars in, in the 50s were actors who he liked to say slurred their words, you know, the James Deans, the Marlon Brandos, and he was a classically trained theater actor. And so horror movies gave him an opportunity to be who he was, the villain, the eloquent man. And, you know, he knows that if he hadn't found horror movies, his career would have ended. Horror movies gave him the chance to create a whole new persona, and he was grateful to them. All of the great William Castle movies, uh, which, you know, they were quite the showman William Castle was. 
Um, and often he took movies just for, you know, the opportunity to get to go live someplace very cool. So Last Man on Earth, which I know is a lot of people's favorite movies, frankly, you know, and he loved Dick Matheson, of course, but half of why he took it was he got to live in Rome for nine months. And this is a picture of him during that time. Uh, Rome proved to be fortuitous, at least as far as I'm concerned. Um, while living in Rome, my mother suddenly started getting cravings for Chinese food, which everyone thought was very strange. Um, especially since the food is so good in Rome and not necessarily the Chinese food. And she was 45 and my dad was 50, but I was the reason why. I was the Chinese food craving. I came along as a big, huge surprise. My dad was an amazing dad. He was completely absent. He was always working. He lectured on the visual arts, 60 cities in 65 days, every January and February. He made all of the AIP movies. He was constantly gone. I mean, he was gone so often that I actually thought he worked at the airport. It never occurred to me that was where we dropped him to go someplace else. But when he was there, he was so full of life, so full of enthusiasm. He taught me that life, all the things that you've heard people say about him, that if you were always curious, you will never be bored. And if you limit your interests, you limit your life. Those are the things he taught me by being a dad, and I had an extraordinary childhood with him. Um, and uh, we were very close. People always ask me if I visited the sets. I didn't really. They tried to keep my, uh, my childhood fairly normal. And so while he's doing, you know, some of your favorites here, Pit and the Pendulum, um, I was very sheltered at home and I had no idea my dad was a horror movie actor. But I'm about four and they decide they should take me to go see, you know, what my dad does for a living. Like, you know, had he been a butcher, I would have maybe gone to see the butcher shop. So they took me to something that they thought was perfect introduction. He was doing a children's play called Peter Pan nearby in Los Angeles. So they took me. Well, I took one look at my dad playing Captain Hook, and apparently I freaked out. And not just a little bit freaked out, like loud freaked out. And my mother was British, no public displays of affection, and, or anything, emotion, anything. And here, I wouldn't shut up. And so to get me to shut up, they had to take me backstage during intermission so that my dad could prove to me that he was not the mean Captain Hook and that nothing had happened to his hands. And my mother, the perpetual photographer, chronicled this. And this is the source of my childhood trauma, which I'm gonna share with you right now. That is not a happy child. I'm still not happy, nothing, and you know, my dad could walk in the room, I would beam, it was not good. And he's trying, he's really trying here. Okay, it's getting a little better. We're smiling at the camera. He's kissing my finger. It's all starting to improve. That is a weak smile, but it's better. And finally, I'm playing with the hook, and it's all okay. But from that experience, my parents determined that I was not the child who should see horror movies ever. <laughs> So the re way I knew what my dad did was that I saw him spoof himself on, you know, The Brady Bunch or Get Smart or Batman, but I never saw horror movies. The first one I saw was when I was an exchange student in Germany when I was 16, and it freaked the hell out of me. You know, I just, it, here's my dad who I think, you know, is the most incredible person in the world, and he's like killing people and then being killed. It wasn't a good thing for me. <laughs> Of course, in real life, he was having a blast. And this is one of my favorite pictures of him and all of his great friends at a lunch break, <laughs> which is such a great shot. My dad did an amazing thing, which was um, in the early 60s, Sears was revamping their image from being a catalog store to being more of a high-end, higher-end department store. So they hired people to be spokespeople. Ted Williams, the Boston Red Sox slugger, became their sporting goods spokesman. And Sir Edmund Hillary, who'd recently climbed Mount Everest, he was their outdoor and camping gear. And they asked my dad to be the art spokesman, and my dad took one look at the art that was sold at Sears. He was like, <laughs> no. Well, my mother, always, you know, five years ahead of her time, said, well, this is an incredible opportunity. If you could do it your way, would you do it? And he said, well, what would my way be? And she said, why don't you go off and think about that? She was always giving us assignments like that, which 
he clearly took to a lot better than I did. But anyway, long story short, he did go off and think about it. And he said, if I could buy all the art for Sears, I would do it. And that's what he did. He bought thousands of pieces of art for Sears. He bought emerging artists. You could buy a Picasso for $190 on your Sears credit card with a money back guarantee. And he was really a populist. And his idea was he really believed that art saves lives. Art saved his life. It took him out of a life of what he thought would have been just, you know, corporate mediocrity in St. Louis. And he believed that if you could have a piece of art in your life, you would feel a connection to something larger than you. And that's what he did through Sears, which was an, a, a pretty amazing thing. Uh, they also started something called National Treasures, which was like restoration hardware, um, 30 years ahead of its time. So they went all over and they collected antiques and then they reproduced them for Sears. And we had this uh, milk truck of an RV called the Clark Cortez and my mom quickly determined that if the antique store owners saw that my dad was there, the price would go up. So she would always make him lie down on the floor of the RV, don't get up, the price will go up. But we got to travel all over the West. My dad was also on the Indian Arts and Crafts Board of the Department of the Interior of the US government and he was promoting and protecting the work of Native Americans. And that was the best part of my childhood because we got to go all over the West and usually if you're in the West, you get to ride a horse, which was the height of my ambition. Um, and uh, as you can see, museums were a big part of my childhood. They also wrote this cookbook, which is gonna come out next year, 2015. It is It'll be the 50th anniversary of this cookbook. It was produced in 1965, and it is an incredible cookbook. It's called A Treasury of Great Recipes. It is the eighth most popular out-of-print book of any kind. It is, has a complete cult following this book, and the reason why is that I feel like it encapsulated my parents' um, philosophy of life better than anything. They were collectors of experience. They went through life, and they took it in with every part of themselves. So they would go on a trip and they would, my dad could charm, you know, anything out of anyone. And so he would charm the recipe for some dish he loved. And my mother would buy the, you know, similar dishes and they would come home and they'd figure out how to prepare it for their friends. And they'd play the music and serve it on the dishes and have the meal. And they'd share that experience with their friends. And that's really what that cookbook is. It's, it's, going through life, collecting experience, and sharing it with others. It's a, it's a really wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and, you know, it wasn't all high-end things. This is a photo from the cookbook uh, of, with a recipe for hot dogs, because my dad was a huge baseball fan, and those are Dodger dogs. Their house also became a real showpiece, architectural showpiece, and uh, had some incredible art in it. And it was an extraordinary place to grow up learning how to see Art was not about the elite for my dad. Art was a window into everyone's soul. And so the way he taught a kid, me, how to love art was to tell me the stories behind the art and help me to see into artists' souls, which was incredible. Um, and as I said, they collected all over the map. I mean, didn't everyone have a Northwest Coast totem pole in their backyard? That totem pole, by the way, belonged to John Barrymore before it belonged to my dad. Uh, and, you know, it was not all museum-like. It was irreverent. On Christmas, the pre-Columbian figures got dressed up. <laughs> People always ask about what it was like to spend Halloween with Vincent Price. Uh, so this is a picture of me and my, all my little friends on Halloween. But the best thing we did is we'd take that brown milk truck to Beverly Hills, and we knew where they had the good candy. It was on Palm Drive they had the good candy. So my mother would prepare a little meal for us and then we'd go trick-or-treating and my dad would go out with us and he'd send us girls up to the door and we'd go get our candy and it was that good candy. We were excited and we'd go running down to check our loot. In the meantime, my dad would pop out from behind the bushes and scare the owners. He thought that was hilarious. <laughs> and I end uh, this picture of this phase of his life with this incredibly paisley outfit. Uh, that's us on the last trip we took as a family uh, because my dad made a movie in 1972, which is actually my favorite of his horror movies, a wonderful movie called Theater of Blood. And uh, it's, you know, classic premise, right? My dad's a Shakespearean actor who gets dissed by the critics and he does what every actor dreams of doing. He kills the critics. 
in very creative ways. And the only female critic in this movie was a uh, very beautiful and witty and talented Australian English actress named Coral Brown, whom he electrocuted under a hairdryer. And perhaps my life would have been better had that happened in real life, but sadly it didn't. And uh, he married my wicked stepmother, which is actually what she liked to call herself. <laughs> my dad left my mom. And, you know, the interesting thing is, Coral was a very difficult woman for my brother and for me. She was not mother material. But I will tell you right now, she was great for my dad. She just gave him a complete new lease on life. They fell in love, head over heels with one another, and he just, his heart opened up, his love of life opened up, because my mother, while a great teammate, as I experienced, you know, she kind of got more restrictive in her thinking, and Coral was wild. And uh, they had an extraordinary partnership. And the thing about Coral that was also amazing was that she was, in addition to being a brilliant actress, she was very, very smart about what to do for career moves. And so at a point in my, in my dad's life when he had become very, very narrowly typecast in the horror movies, she suggested that he do a one-man show about Oscar Wilde. And it was called Diversions and Delights, and he played Oscar Wilde at the very end of his life. And I think it was the best thing I ever saw my dad do. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, piece of acting. And he loved doing it so much that when its traditional run ended, he actually took it on the road for three years in a van. This was his crew. They drove all over the country. That's them at Niagara Falls. And they performed it at colleges. And you have to understand, this is the late 70s, you know, very early 80s, but mostly late 70s. And he's performing as perhaps the most famous gay man in the world all over at colleges. And it made a huge difference both in his life and in the lives of people who saw the, the play. But of course, you know, the 80s came along and he became recognized as the horror royalty, mm -hmm. member of horror royalty that he is. I love this picture of Chris and Peter and it's really John Carradine. And of course he became Edward Gorey Connection. He became the host of Mystery, which further cemented his his place, but it was always about art for my dad. And the great thing that he felt about becoming so famous was that he got to have extraordinary opportunities to talk about art and be with art. And this was his fa favorite thing. When the De Young Museum in San Francisco did a show um, where they brought in art from the Vatican, he got to do the voiceover for it. And he said, being alone at night with all the art from the Vatican was one of, was a dream come true for him. He still remained very, very involved in East Los Angeles College, and he was very, very active in everything he did for the students there. I'm going to get to the very end of his life, which um, it, it's something I'm very grateful for. He was doing a show for Disney called Read, Write, and Draw, and somebody told him about this young animator, kind of quirky guy who was a big fan. My dad always wanted to meet everybody, so he goes down to meet this guy, hair all over the place, and he'd drawn this really wonderful little movie called Vincent, about a boy named Vincent Malloy who wants to grow up to be Vincent Price, and that, of course, was Tim Burton. And my dad agreed to narrate the film for Tim, which I think kind of blew Tim away. And, uh, of course, my dad thought it was the biggest honor ever. That and being the subject of a New York Times crossword puzzle were about the, you know, as good as you could get. And so Tim returned the favor for my dad by giving him the role in Edward Scissorhands, which was this incredible swan song. A lot of actors, you know, kind of fade to obscurity, and my dad got to go out with an incredible role as that of the inventor in Edward Scissorhands. And uh, he and Johnny, both Geminis, hit it off. And I love that picture of the three of them together. Tim also, uh, those of you who are Tim Burton fans, hound him, please. He filmed a movie called Conversations with Vincent. And this is on my dad's 80th birthday at the museum. And he filmed two days with my dad. And to give you an idea of what a pro my dad was, and he was, he always was a pro in what he did. Halfway during the second day of filming, he got a call that my stepmother, who had been very ill, had died. And he knew that Tim had an expensive crew there, and he'd paid for them for two days. And my dad stayed and finished filming till the end of the day, because that's what you did if you were a pro. 
I don't just remember him. I miss him all the time in the sense of wishing I could share things with him. When I see a great piece of art, when I hear a great story, I heard a great story about my dad buying a painting today. Um, when I eat something wonderful, I always want to share it with my dad. So I want to get to the very end of my life. My stepmother died before my dad, as I said, and my dad got to spend time with me and my brother. My stepmother had really excluded me and my brother, me not as much. She and I sort of had a love-hate relationship. She and my brother just had a hate-hate relationship. And uh, that was difficult. So we finally got to spend time with my dad, um, and he got to grow. My stepmother only liked white flowers. He loved flowers of all colors, so he got to grow those. And the very fun thing that we got to do was we got to play together, which we hadn't been able to do since I was a kid. When I was a little kid, all I wanted to do was be able to play board games. And I didn't have normal parents. They were like older and they didn't really understand what board games were all about. And I'd be like, can't we play a board game? So one year for Christmas, they bought me a board game and it was called Masterpiece. They didn't buy me Candyland. They didn't buy me Monopoly. They bought me Masterpiece. And what you did in Masterpiece was you guessed the auction prices of great works of art. I was nine. Who cared? But they were very excited. We got the game out. We started to play. It's Van Gogh's irises. We're bidding on this thing. And we all give in our bids. I'm really excited. We're trying to play this board game. The answer comes up. My dad is like, that's not the answer. It just sold two weeks ago at Sotheby's for $3.2 million. That's incorrect. And that was it. That was the last time we played a board game. <laughs> Until the end of his life, when he was stuck in bed, his brain so incredibly active. So we started to play Trivial Pursuit as a family. And it was me and my brother and my dad. We were the Bloods. And then Reg, who took care of my dad, and my sister-in-law, and usually a friend of mine, and they were the Crips. <laughs> With my dad on our team, we won every time. I mean, that man was sharp. And the very last time we played is one of my favorite memories. My dad was kind of on morphine and fading in and out, but he contributed a little, but by the end of the game, his, his head was back on the pillow. We always played on his bed. And he was sort of fading out. And, but my brother and I did okay, and we got to the last question. You know, the opposing team gets to pick the category, right? So they picked science and nature, because we always sucked at science and nature. And they asked this question. And my brother and I looked stricken at one another, like, oh my God, and we're looking over at my dad, and he's passed out, I'm like, oh God. And the question was, what does a man have more than two of if he is poly orchid? Now, my brother is the best read person I know, and we're, you know, hashing it out, trying to get it, and we're looking at my dad, and he's no help, and we're like, shit, we're gonna lose. All of a sudden, we heard this sort of noise from the pillow, and we heard him say, Bum. we're like, what? And then we looked over and his eyes were still shut. So we're talking and my sister-in-law, who was really competitive, was like, got this big grin on her face, like, we've got him. And my dad props himself up on the pillow with the last ounce of his strength. And he says, balls. <laughs> we won. We had a very small uh, memorial service with just a few of his friends, and we scattered his ashes. Uh, he wanted them scattered in the Pacific, but not in Santa Monica Bay, because it was already too polluted. Um, so we scattered it uh, near where we'd had a beach house our whole life. Um, I usually end with a really funny clip, but we don't have enough time, unless you guys tell me we do. Okay. So I'm going to end with a clip, and the reason I end with this clip is, um, you know, for me, this is a really heartfelt thing of remembering who my dad was. You know, he was a man who gave back. He was a man who loved life. He was a man who had fun. He enjoyed, you know, and I have to say, being the workaholic multitasker, it's hard for me to remember that every day. And I love remembering that all we have to do is find what we love share it with other people. And that is the way to connect. When we connect to joy, we connect to other people and we connect to something larger than us. And I go out there and say it and then I hear this little voice in my head going, oh Christ, couldn't you have made it a little bit more funny? Couldn't you have done like, you know, let's say what I did for Betty Davis? And so I'm gonna end with what my dad did as his tribute to Betty Davis, which really was way better than anything I could have said today.
Mm, I think everyone will agree that Vincent Price is one of the most popular actors in our industry. Vincent got started in movies playing the Invisible Man, and I still can't see him. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, a fine actor, Mr. Vincent Price. pay tribute to Miss <laughs> Betty Davis, the actress who became a Hollywood star the hard way. She wasn't naked. She wasn't black. She didn't even know Kung Fu. <laughs> uh, Kung Fu, Dean, that isn't an Italian curse. No. Now, tonight I'm here as one of Betty Davis's greatest fans, and I'd like to talk about some of her most memorable films. She made her first picture back in 1932. I was a child. <laughs> it was called The Way Back Home. It didn't do too well at the box office until it was re-released under a new title, Sexual Freedom in Denmark. In 1934, she starred in Of Human Bondage, for which Betty was nominated for an Oscar. She played a woman of the streets who said to Leslie Howard, Why, you dirty bleep. You can take your bleeping money and shove it. And for that kind of language, she became known as the first lady of the American street. Betty has always suffered in every picture she has ever made. When I appeared with her in Elizabeth and Essex, she gave up her beauty. In Dark Victory, she gave up her eyesight. And in The Virgin Queen... <laughs> she gave up her hobby. <laughs> But in 1950, Betty received another Academy nomination for All About Eve. This was a three-handkerchief picture. And in 1962, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? That was a three-diaper picture. Uh, in this one, she appeared with her old friend, Joan Crawford. Miss Crawford has always been envious of Betty's voluptuous figure. As a matter of fact, Joan used to borrow Betty's bras to use for shoulder pads. There was Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and Betty Davis entered my field. Horror films, yes. Uh, but that's not new for you, Betty, because some critics have always found your pictures horrors. <laughs> Yes, it's true that many reviewers have knocked Betty, but then that's how you measure a great star, by her knockers. Thank you all. Again, huge thanks to Victoria Price for allowing us to share that with the Monster Kid Radio listeners. It was a great presentation. She was a great person to chat with. If you listen to episode 97, you heard that for yourself. Head over to vincentprice.com or vincentpricelegacy.com to keep up to date on everything that she's got going on regarding her famous and legendary father. I've also told her she's welcome back on the show anytime if she's got any other events or appearances coming up. And she shares that with us. We'll share that with you. Go back to episode 97 to hear about some of her upcoming convention appearances as well. All right. I said I'd mention the voicemail line again. That's 503-4795-MKR, as in Monster Kid Radio. You see, next week is episode number 99 and the big one, episode 100. And to celebrate, we are going to go over your top 100 classic movie monsters for the past few weeks i think maybe even about a month we've been asking you the listeners to help us create this list of the top 100 classic movie monsters according to the listeners of monster kid radio well if you'd like to call in and leave me a voicemail with maybe one or two of your favorites call us at that voicemail line now i've already reached out to 
every former guest of Monster Kid Radio over the past 90-something episodes and ask them to call in. And we started getting some calls in. I'm going to share that with everybody in episode number 99. So if you want to get your voice on the show, talking about some of your favorite classic movie monsters, well, you know the drill. Call in. It is a Google voicemail line, which means there is a three-minute limit. In episode 99, we're going to go over those recordings as well as the movie monsters that made numbers 100 through 11. And then in episode 100, we're going to go over the top 10. I'd like to thank everybody who has been influential and a part of making sure that we get to 100 episodes here on Monster Kid Radio. I could not have done it without you. And when I say you, I mean you, the listeners. Thank you so much for all of your support. Oh, you know, I didn't mention this. The Rondo Awards were announced. Vincent Price showed very well. Last episode, I mentioned the book Hidden Horror winning. Well, Monster Kid Radio, we got an honorable mention in the best multimedia horror category. And again, we could not have done that without your support. So thank you so much. And thank you to the Boss Jaguars for letting us play their new song, Rust Bucket, from their EP release, See and Be Seen. Again, find them over at bossjaguars.com. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license, except, of course, for the song Rust Bucket. That belongs to the Boss Jaguars. Talk to everybody next week. <laughs>